Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. My name is Alan McPherson. And this is episode 53 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 53, we have a special guest, uh, Alan McPherson from Metro District in the uh, northeast of the United States is with us, which is awesome. This is actually his second time on the show, so welcome. And we are going to start off, though, with our uh, First Peter Chapter 2 overview, and then we will kind of kick it over to Alan and uh, want to hear about the Winter Nationals from this year and get an update from Alan on, on that. And then we've got a few kind of nerd out kind of uh, questions and discussion items that the three of us are going to go through. And then if we've got a little bit of time, I want to talk about the idea, I guess this is sort of a a third or fourth nerd out idea, the idea of a potential rule book refactor and what that would look like and why we'd, we would want to do it and sort of the specific kind of quizzing nerd reasons around why that might be a good idea, maybe a bad idea, but we'll talk about it. So with that said, let's dive in and uh, talk about First Peter chapter two. So Scott, what are your kind of first thoughts here? All right, well, let's start with the basics. We've got 25 verses, so, and we've got some PNW key verses in those 20s, so be careful if you are a specialist. You've got to be a little bit slower on um, this chapter if you're jumping on quote questions. Um, there's a few in those 20s for chapter verse reference quizzers as well, so you also need to be careful. Looks like this chapter has an average amount of PNW key verses, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 of the 25, so that's 40%. Um, so that's a good number, I'd say. And then kind of like most of the material this year, there's a really good spread of the different levels of uniqueness throughout this whole chapter. So global unique, chapter unique, and unique phrases, and um, stuff that is none of the above. So um, good for chapter verse reference questions. So I kind of see a mix here. I see a few key verse pairs. I see a finish this. Um, and... I don't really really know how much else to say. I think true to this entire material, it's pretty memorable stuff and lends itself to memorizing quite easily. Indeed. This is not my most favorite chapter of the Bible, but I would say it's it's easily in the top 20, possibly the top 10. Uh, I don't know. It's I I don't have an exact list, but it feels like it's a, it's maybe somewhere in in that sort of general ballpark. There's some really great verses to memorize right off on chapter one. Rid yourselves of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Crave pure spiritual uh, uh, milk so that you can grow up in your salvation. There's just some great great content here. Live as free people, uh, but don't uh, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So from from verse 16, uh, we're not talking about you know as Christians we are set free from sin, but we are not set free to sin. And so we have uh, we are we are not bound by the yoke of sin, but we are bound by the glorious wonderful yoke of being a slave for God, um, which sounds like a horrible way of phrasing that. You're like, who would want to be a slave? But it's actually an, 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 an incredibly joyous, um, wonderful sort of ex, uh, experience that we're talking about here. Um, there's just some so much good stuff here that is, um, I don't know, I'm starting to sort of Bible nerd out here a little bit. Uh, so sorry about that. But like uh, what, what Scott was saying, good, even spread of keyness and uniqueness, both in terms of 
you know, global unique words, and in terms of chapter key that seems to be fairly evenly spread across all these different uh, uh, verses. There's a couple of, let's see, there's one finish this on verse six. I don't think I'm seeing another one and a healthy, reasonable, averagey kind of number of key verses for P&W elsewhere. The two key verses combined on verses four and five, you should be uh, watching out for. Let's see. What are some spots that are maybe tricky? Um, There's some decent repetition, right? So we've got a therefore in verse 1. We've got a dear friends in verse 11. Um, I believe that phrase, once you are not, in verse 10 is fairly repetitive. Um, there's an in scripture it says, I believe. There's elsewhere in the material where a quotation is set off with it says. Um, for it is commendable. I believe it is commendable exists elsewhere. So there, there's a handful of those phrases which definitely are other places. But conceptually, I think um, there's nothing too difficult in this chapter. Yeah, indeed. Um, Alan, what are, what are your thoughts about chapter two? I know I haven't given you any sort of uh, heads up warning, so it's this sort of off the fly comments, but what are your thoughts here? No, it's okay. Um, I think what you say about it being among the favorite chapters is something that's there for me. It's, it's, it's a level of intensity I like in material. Um, so, like you said, to rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, um, you know, those things, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, abstain from sinful desires, wage war against your soul. You know, those, there's good keywords in there as a quizzing wise, but just as a implementation to life chapter, it's pretty high up there for me. It's really, really good material. Um, we haven't gotten to First Peter yet in our district as far as memorization, but um, I've been looking through the material myself. And it's just really, like, this is one of the chapters that really stood out to me. I didn't memorize Hebrews in First and Second Peter during my quizzing years, so it was nice to really get into it and really dive into it as a quizzer would, because I'm trying to memorize along with the kids all year this year. So, yeah, I, I, I agree at the level of excellence. I'm a, I'm a Paul guy, so the level of intensity that Paul writes with Peter brings that here. So, I love it. I love it. I love First Peter. Yeah, totally. And I mean, with the intensity of Paul, but maybe slightly less, uh, like legalistic. Slightly I, not, less legalistic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Or, or I mean, and why I, I don't mean legalistic, but I guess I do mean legalistic, but also legalistic language. I guess, and that's not even what I'm trying to say either. Well, well yeah. I mean, Paul can be interpreted as legalistic if you look at it. Um, from just a broad view, like if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then this good thing will happen. It's not how Paul really tries to get us to do things, but on a broad scope, I can see how someone can look at that and see that's how Paul would write. Yeah, indeed. Well, any other final thoughts before we move on? Um, let me take a quick look. Look, this is First Peter two. Looks like there's a decent number of. Um, multiple answer questions in this chapter and there's a good number of reference questions as well so there's nothing terribly noteworthy there um but it's a, it's chock full of lots of quizzing material yeah a lot of opportunities i think for chapter reference questions coming out of this there's a lot of chapter key words that start in fairly strategically easy places to write questions on so be uh, be kind of on the lookout for that if you if you do elect to memorize the entire chapter which you know it's only 25 verses so you know that may not be uh, such a bad goal 
uh, take a look at the red words that sort of start out phrases. Uh, and uh, I think you're going you're gonna to be able to pick up a few chapter reference questions that way. All right. Well, all that, with all that being said, let us move on to welcoming Alan officially as our special guest. Yay. And Alan <laughs> is here to talk about winter nationals and give us an update. So Alan, what, for folks who didn't listen to the uh, podcast that you were on uh, the first time and talking about winter nationals, um, tell us a little bit about that and then uh, give us an update for this year. What happened? Um, so our winter nationals um, is sort of like your great north where we have a few different districts get together for a weekend to fellowship and grow with one another and quiz against one another it's usually a two-day event we get there saturday um early early afternoon and then we leave sunday evening um and we had metro northeastern new england and eastern canada this year um so it was nice to have you know, as you know, Northeastern and Eastern Canada are our two powerhouse lately districts. So it's nice to have our kids from a standpoint of, of um, yeah, I guess competition at, at a very high level gets to the point where they quiz against these, these districts just to see how they handle large amounts of material. We did Hebrews 1 to 11 for that tournament. And it went well. I was impressed at the level of memorization that the kids have and by the level of nuanced memorization, how we do a quote-off and we do a one-on-one tournament just to, you know, kind of shake things up a little bit. Our quote-off, we line up anybody who wants to do it, and we ask them nothing but quotes and finish the verses until we get to 12 quizzers left. And then we throw them on pads, and the first two to quiz out, quiz against each other in the final round, and then the winner after seven questions wins the quote-off. So that level of memorization this year was really, really good. We had to go through a lot of rounds of quotes and FTVs. We finally had to get into the quote twos and finish twos to start really whittling down to that 12 number. And then they all quizzed really well. It, it was really impressive, the level of, of knowledge they had. Now, that can be because the material is so abbreviated this year compared to what John was, compared to what, you know, something like Luke is or Matthew next year that they'll be doing. But they're taking advantage of the amount of material that they have to learn, and they're really, really ratcheting up their intensity as far as getting it down and getting it memorized. So um, we had... We had a team from Ottawa in the final. We had a team from Toronto. They're both Eastern Canada, but they're in two different regions of Canada. And then we had one Metro team in the final. Very competitive final. Um, the team from Ottawa came down. They won. They quizzed really well. Um, averages were high for individual scores. And everyone just had a really, really good time. It was a nice, it was a beautiful, beautiful tournament. That's really cool. So the quote-off, is that something... I mean, you guys track individual averages in quiz meets, right, at your district level? Yes, we do. So is the quote-off, does that count in some way, or is that just a special thing separate? The quote-off is just a special thing separate. It's just a, it, it's just a different way to, um, you know, test your knowledge. It's not just interrogatives, multiple answers, or references. It's, can you pinpoint this chapter and this verse and get it right? And if you get 
the first five words of a finished verse, can you finish it? And when you're, and it's not just for kids who quiz at an international level, while there are plenty of kids there who have quizzed or can quiz at that level, it's just for anyone who wants to try. And um, some people have a standard of, okay, I got the first five words of this, this is, I'm getting this and that's it. But to watch some of the kids who haven't really done anything like that go through and sharpen their material was really, really good for them. Interesting. Do you see it as kind of like a, does it, is it useful as a motivator to quizzers who struggle with like jump calculation in terms of speed? Absolutely. So we had, um, there's, there's quizzers who, there's quizzers who can memorize really well, who cannot get the jumping thing down against, you know, quizzers who jump really well. And it's not, it's not a simple thing to go in there and you have a quote question, which people who love quote questions have their, have a, a unique ability to get up on very good timing. They don't need the entire verse, obviously. They can get up on formation of a, a letter, uh, excuse me, of a number after if they're jumping on 20s, they can get the 20 and then get the formation of the next one and know and pinpoint and choose which one makes the most sense. So they're more advanced quizzers. Um, for quizzers who memorize well and who haven't gotten the jumping down yet, it's very good for them because they can just pinpoint, okay, I know where this is, and they can answer questions. It helps them to be in that level as the, all the other quizzers. When it gets to the, the top 12 and they have to jump and quiz against one another, that's a different animal. But it, it helps them at least go through those rotations of showing that they know how to memorize. How big was Winter Nationals? Like, was it um, like an all-star selection from each district, or is it kind of whoever wanted to come? Yeah, it's um, so lately that's how we've been treating it. Um, when we get a few different districts, uh, like usually uh, there's times where we have Great Lakes come down, there's times where we have Central Canada come down. So when, when we have them come down, it's more of the 18 to 21 teams. Um, but typically they send... Uh, Districts will send their best 12 to 15 quizzers on three different teams to come down and compete. It's like, it's kind of a, we call it winter nationals because over the years it had been kind of a mini international. So it was something that not everyone, not all the Western teams, obviously you guys weren't there. A lot of the further um, Midwestern teams couldn't make it out, but... But a lot of the teams from, obviously, the Northeastern to the Eastern Canada's and the Metro's and sometimes the Great Lakes and sometimes the Central Canada's would send their best two to three teams down and quiz at a high level for the weekend just to test where they are, see how their material is down. And it was just a nice bridge from having internationals to all the way through waiting for the next internationals. Like, you guys have Great North. It's nice to have that big meat in the middle to say, okay, how do we stack up against other districts? And is the quota something that you do within Metro District meets, or do you just do it at this uh, Winter Nationals meet? Um, so we, we, do it at, uh, we do it in the Metro meet. We, we try to do some special quizzes. When we have new quizzers in, like we'll have a special quiz for new quizzers so they can get used to getting up and getting jumps um, against other quizzers kind of in their... Um, in their range of being comfortable with quizzing themselves. So whenever we have juniors come up from our junior division to our senior division, or if we have any first-year seniors, 
we'll have them do a special quiz. Um, sometimes we'll do a quote off depending on um, the timing of our district. But the quote off is a really big thing at Winter Nationals. But the one-on-one thing is something that is only for Winter Nationals. We don't do that um, in Metro. I heard you mentioned New England. I've never heard of that uh, district having quiz program. Yeah, so so New England, when I was a quizzer, when I first started quizzing, New England had a district. And they, I guess they kind of disbanded. I don't know what year um, they stopped actually having a district that was part of internationals or winter nationals. But New England had a district for a little bit. And then... We have teams. We have there's a there's a church in Boston that would that comes down to our district finals to be part of Metro, but um, they would be considered New England because they're up in Boston. So that's where they quiz out of. But I don't think I'm not sure if they have any leadership out there that is actually still running CMA quizzing there. And does Western PA ever come to Winter Nationals? Western PA used to. Um, Western PA used to come to Winter Nationals every year, and then they started a tournament a few years back to where now um, Western PA, Central Ohio Valley, Great Lakes um, will, depending on the year, they will come to our tournament or they'll come to Western PA's tournament. So they have a tournament the same weekend as us. Um, So they used to come, but now they have their own tournament. Cool. Very awesome. Well, so some of the things that you uh, teased us about in the pre-show discussion, you were talking about some uh, funky questions ha- uh, or, or more thoughts on funky questions and a scoring system that uh, works around them. So I'm very intrigued of what this means. So can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, the last time I was on, we talked about how we implemented a few different questions from Worlds as far as the finish these two and quote these two. But I mentioned that they have a finish these three verses and quote these three verses. And Scott, you know, got that little giddy excitement that comes with (laughs) let's do new, interesting, fun things. So I thought about it more. And if I recall, I think it came to my mind that when they do a quote these three verses, um, that you only get one revolution through. And if you get it wrong in that one revolution, you're just incorrect. I was thinking if we decide to maybe in a different world that hopefully comes soon implemented in our quizzing, we would make it a 30 point question and still do that one revolution and only do one per quiz, whether it's a quote these three or finish these three and just have that be, this is a 30 point question. You only get one revolution. You can choose to jump on it or you can choose not to because there's going to be some, so few of them. You can't get a finish these three that's going to be really good in a bunch of different places in the material unless you have that longer material like the um, like the Gospels or Corinthians potentially. But it's just something I was thinking about. If we do a 30-point question and give them one revolution through, it might be something pretty exciting. I really, really love the idea of saying a question is worth 30 points. I love the idea of different question values uh question you know in terms of scoring uh in terms of you know linking up complexity or difficulty with with question scoring 
that just seems fascinating to me. There are all kinds of layers of probably unintended consequences that, that will, would shake out of something like that. But right. the idea is deeply fascinating to me. I am intrigued by, I, I, I love the idea of like this, they quote these three verses for 30 points. I'm thinking sort of strategically as let's say I'm a, a team that isn't necessarily like super hot on say quoting three verses uh word perfect. I'm, I'm wondering and of course, it would it would if the the thirty point question happens randomly and it happens, let's say on question four, maybe I actually intentionally err uh, to avoid causing the other teams to be able to grab thirty points. Um, now, I mean, obviously, then that sort of sets up the whole thing of does the quizmaster realize that I intentionally erred because then I could get fouled um, right. and that could be very expensive. Right. Um, but that's an interesting. That would set up some very interesting dynamics there. Scott, what are you thinking? So I definitely, I, I like the idea on some fronts. I think even even now people disagree on the purpose of quote these two and finish these two verses, and that would just be exacerbated if you extend it to three. I mean, to me it's just why not combine two verses that are like stronger together or work better together than by themselves. Um, I've heard the thought that you will write a pair when one of them doesn't stand on its own. And I don't think that one of the two verses has to not stand on its own for them to be written as a pair. And those sorts of interpretation differences just get magnified if you go to three. But I would love, especially at a meet like internationals, having a quote these three or something where the question difficulty is a lot harder because of the material required and not because of how long it takes the question to become key. Because now, and I, w- I will speak in grand generalities, but most years at internationals, any of the top three or six teams probably um, could win it. Um, but it just happens to be, um, you know, who executes best, but also who happens to jump on questions that are key and that they know. And so there's a tremendous amount of luck when you're jumping at those speeds. And so having questions in quizzes that are so difficult that not everyone, not every one of the 12 quizzes on the stage even wants to jump on them, I think is very interesting because it changes it from a, well, I'm just going to jump at my precise speed and hope that I get something key um, to, do I even know the material well enough to have a chance at this? And I think that's, that's exactly what I want to reward um, at a meet like internationals. Would you want to do one a quiz or would you want to do something like two a quiz? Um, I don't, you probably, I'm, I go back and forth on whether I actually want it to be worth a different number of points. I kind of like it worth a different number of points, but if you do that, I think you need to have a constant number per quiz, either one or two. I don't really care. You could get around, like, I totally get that if you know another team is probably going to get it, that you would want to err without making it obvious. And you could just say errs on it or, well, you can't say errs on it or negative 20 because then you're like increasing the risk value of the question. But anyway, um, wouldn't you almost have to though, just to be able to prevent the like, or, or you could say like on, cause I mean the, the worry that I have because of the plus 10 that you would get on it, just out of out of nowhere, plus the fact that let's say there's two of them per quiz versus one. I mean, it just sort of. I guess it doesn't really matter. It just sort of exacerbates the the potential problem there. The if you don't increase error points, there's going to be a stronger desire to pre jump on it. And well, not pre jump, but like 
to because it would be verse numbered. Um, it feels to me like there'd be a stronger desire to prevent other teams from getting it rather than attempting to ensure that you get it when you jump, um, if that makes sense. Um, whereas if you increase the errors to 20, then it's like, well, yeah, it's a bigger risk. So the jumping slows down a little bit. Maybe there's a half a pause or something. But then when somebody jumps, then you're like, yeah, they're pretty assured of they're giving it a real go, you know, kind of stuff. There's no, there's no ambiguity around their, their intentions. The other, the other idea is let's say you have error points be the same, but regardless of where the question is, error points would be in effect. So theoretically you could get, you know, minus 10 on question seven or something. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. I would almost adopt um, like a, soccer sort of thing where i think it's in the world cup if you get a yellow card in cons- one yellow card in consecutive matches it it equates to a red card for the third match or or something like that yeah, so in this i i would say um if a team goes negative 1 on the 30 point questions which means they have um one more wrong than they have correct for the meet cumulatively then it's negative 10 when they go to to Minus two, it goes to negative twenty. Minus three, negative thirty, um, and that would be the the deterrent to just airing willy nilly on these. Interesting. So yeah, I don't like the implementation of that, where there's things that have happened outside of this quiz that teams need to know for the scoring of this quiz, and I don't I don't like that at all. But I think this kind of adding your performance over the whole meet where it's like, Hey, if you're 50, 50 on these and you get half right, half wrong, then there will be no extra error points besides just what happens in a quiz. Right. Um, but if you're like, Oh, seven on these, that seventh one's going to be negative 70 points, you know? Right now. Imagine, yeah. imagine you have three teams getting together and let's say, uh, two teams haven't aired at all because they haven't jumped. Let's say, on the 30 point questions, but one team has and is aired, uh, that knowing that going into the quiz actually causes a non equal footing of those three teams, uh, you know, on question one, which is, I'm not saying that's, that's neither good nor bad. It's just something very interesting that I had, I've never thought of before. Yeah, but it's not equal of their own doing, you know? <laughs> True. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. It's not like anybody's imposing it on them. It's just interesting. The idea of starting a quiz on an uneven, you know, playing field. Right. I mean, and then I I haven't really thought about it, but now that we're deep diving and then we're at question, you know, what if it's a a third person or a fourth person bonus? Is that a 40 point question now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'd have to be. Right. And if we're at, and if we're adopting right. my my point values of third person is 10, fourth person is 20, and fifth person is 30, then it could be a 60-point question. What Scott means to say is if we're adopting my point values <laughs> for uh, – for, I, I completely agree with it. I, I think I, – I would love to be able to see an incrementally increasing uh, point values for – you know in, because I, I think it's fundamentally harder, like not just a little harder, but like an order of mag- – not order of magnitude, but it's it's – Call it what two x three x harder to have a fourth person uh, bonus than a third person bonus. Right. I would l- I would love to see that reflected in the score. Right. And if you're doing that, you know, especially when you get down to the fourth fifth person bonuses, you know, you have twenty questions. You have, you know, if you're at international, chances are the teams are going to have, you know, f- 
four to five quizzers. So you're getting 12 quizzers. If five people from one of your team scores within 20 questions, it's it should be worth something more. That makes perfect sense. Well, yeah. let's see here. Within PNW District last year, we had 202 third-person bonuses. We had 19 fourth-person bonuses and one fifth-person bonus. Now, a lot of that is you, know, you almost have no five-person teams to begin with, but it just right. shows, I mean, there's what, one one-tenth as many fourth-person bonuses as third-person bonuses. And I think upping the value there is really cool because um, I love seeing those fourth- and fifth-quizzers get questions. Right. So so, so you would do um, third-person bonus plus 10, fourth-person bonus plus 20, third-person plus 30. So, like, a fifth-person bonus would be a 50-point question. Uh, correct. But only like for the team. Only right, for of the, course. Only of for course. team score, yeah, yeah. I like because we're having like two of those a year. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and especially at internationals, it gets to that point where, you know, like you said, the top. I mean, the, the top three to six teams. I mean, you can push it depending on the year. A year like this year, where the material so abbreviated, now you're looking at potentially anyone who gets into the top nine. You know, if they get on a nice run with this material, if they have it down. Next thing you know, the ninth place team is in the final because they had two really good quizzes where they got locked in and the jumps went their way. If you do that fourth, fifth person bonus, because chances are those top three to six teams who don't have to do XYZs are getting more of those, you know, third, fourth, fifth person bonuses. It might make for a, you know, once we get into this round robin thing, it might separate them the way they were separated during prelims. Yeah, and then what I would love to do at internationals to reduce some of that random luck in semifinals is each of quizzes A, B, and C happen twice, and you just take the the sum of the team points to decide who gets first, second, and third. I oh, think we talked about that with when Heather was on. So, so instead so, of having a bracket, you would do um, the one four nine quiz, the two five eight, three four seven. You would quiz those twice. Yeah, because I think those are the most impactful quizzes in semifinals. Because if you're in D, you have multiple chances to get in the finals. If you're in right. E, you're kind of okay. But if you're in F, you're like, oh, I almost have no shot, you know? Right. Okay. That's interesting. I think I remember that from Heather's, but I never really, like, put it to to memory. That makes... Scott, you're a brilliant man. I think A, B, and C are where teams, like, that's kind of where you make your bed that you have to lie in. Absolutely. Once you're in, once you're in D, E, and F, I don't... Um, maybe you have a bad quiz in that one or a good one, but I think you're kind of stuck based on how those first three went, and which is why I'd love to have more data to slot those teams. Okay. Yeah, I mean, is that something that you do um, in P&W? Is that something that you've implemented there? To where... I mean, I mean do you guys do... Um, do you guys do brackets? I don't know how your district meets or anything set up. Do you guys do brackets of, of the top nine to get to the finals at the end of the tournament? We do both. So we've, we've got a um, sort of part one of the quiz meet, which is basically all of Friday and then like, I don't know, the first third of Saturday, roughly speaking, is uh, prelim style. Uh, and so... Uh, we don't double up quizzes, but there's a fairly healthy number of quizzes there, so it tends to kind of even itself out uh, based on the size of the district. And then uh, we we uh, once we wrap up uh, prelims, we calculate the averages, or rather Scott calculates the averages and then sets up a bracket, which uh, is basically the, the remaining roughly two-thirds of Saturday. 
uh, and that leads us into an ever-dwindling number of teams and then finally into championships for Saturday. Okay. And I think there's less of a need to do this with MPNW because each district meet is relatively not super important, right, in and of itself. And I would bet that the difference in quality between the teams in the top nine is greater than what you would see at internationals, right? Right. I mean, the the top team might be super, super good, but really the difference between Team 2 and Team 8 is going to be very small, yeah. um, which is why, you know, I've seen years where Western PA has the top team averaging something crazy, like 16 team points a quiz. <laughs> right. And then they just happen, poor luck or what have you, to take third in their first quiz, and then they're just way behind the eight ball. Yeah. And I would say, like, hey, maybe you have a bad quiz and take third and put up 40 points, but if you have another one to at least claw your way into second in quiz E. Um, I like that a lot better because you're not like doomed after just one bad quiz after 12 like good ones, you know? Right. So um, maybe I'm not. No, I think I'm understanding. So you would do those first three quizzes twice and then you would slot them into the brackets afterwards. Correct. Just continue on as normal. Perfect. I think that's not only is that like a really good idea, I think that should be done. I think that's the best way to make sure that you're that you're doing it. It's like, you know, the NFL does it one way because it's just a more powerful sport. You don't want to have these guys play two games in two days. But, you know, NBA, they're not doing if you win this one game because your three-pointer is going in, then you're going on to the next round. They do a best out of five, best out of seven to see who the best team is. So... And I think room three is dropped pretty early once you get into the brackets anyway. And so I think, I know that it's nice to have all of semifinals in room one. Um, but you, I think it would be fair if like both quiz A's happen in room one, both quiz B's in room two, and both quiz C's in room three. And then everything continues in room one from then on. I mean, maybe the teams that were in quiz A have a little bit of an advantage because they, they might have the timing fully locked in for that room one quiz master. But I think... For the sake of the schedule, you kind of would have to put those yeah. A, B, and C horizontally. Would you change the quiz master at that point, too, so there's not as much part, um, like just wear and tear on the quiz master itself, you know, themselves of having all those quizzes in their room? I would say change the quiz master and the room, absolutely. Um, because, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, you know, maybe one quiz master style one team just really struggles with. And if you have two quiz masters, you can even that out. You know, it's, it's essentially a, it's a sort of philosophically, it's a way to smooth over sort of random outliers that, that, that might happen in a quiz meet. Right. So it makes no sense. So that, but that idea of doing the first three quizzes twice, it makes so much sense when you say it that way. Now it's just, it's a much fairer way of doing it. Well, so with that said, uh, so Alan, any other uh, f- uh, funky thoughts, or should we move on to the n- the next topic? Um, one quick one. Um, bonus questions. You know, maybe everyone's fine with it having it be the luck of the draw, but and maybe this is just something that at internationals because we expect the levels to be higher. What if bonus questions were never interrogatives or? And, you know, they were always a specialty-type question. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, 
I really love jumping bonuses within the district level, and I can't right. envision PNW ever changing. And I do like assigned seat bonuses internationals because it kind of gives a push that you might lose out on some points if you severely specialize within your team. Um, but I don't know. I'm fine with it being random. I would hate to pick um, like interrogatives as the one that um, it's not going to be because. There are really short finish the verses, you know, there are really short multiple answers. I think you're probably right that on average interrogatives are going to be the easiest question type. Um, right. But I, I'm I'm fine with it just randomly showing up. Okay. I don't feel super strongly, though. No, neither I. It was just something that randomly popped into my head when I think about quizzing, which is usually most of any time of the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and by the time you get to internationals, a bonus question is really... I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a bonus scoring event, right? I mean, essentially, I mean, you actually have to, you know, answer the question, that kind of thing. But it's almost like um, it go, kind of goes back to Scott's sort of jumping uh, philosophy. Like, if you get all of the question uh, read out, answering it correctly is a formality. Uh, so, you know, in part of me almost would, would take the opposite view. I mean, I don't necessarily, I don't, I'm not advocating for any change like this, but like part of me almost wants to say, make all bonus questions interrogatives only. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, you both made errors. This is the quote unquote penalty for your error. The other team gets this 20 or 10, 10 or 20 points. It does mean that, well, and of course this happens at internationals anyway. Like, I don't know that there's a huge difference at the international level between, say, an interrogative and, say, like, a chapter verse reference or something like that. Um, at district levels, you know, certain parts of district levels, the, the differences in question type and where those are located within the material can make uh, a fairly big difference. Um, but I keep thinking you know, as you're progressing into higher levels of quizzing, the jumping choices, the strategy of jumping choices on toss-ups becomes uh, slightly different, right? Because you're, instead of leading into a toss-up, you're leading into a unknown, very likely case where the other team is going to pick up points kind of thing. Right. No, that makes sense. And I love using sitting on a question as a penalty more than I love taking away points. I think it's much more effective, and so and this would i don't I haven't thought about this at all, but something like if on your fifth team air or eighth team air or some number, you sit out two questions or Ooh, just wow. and it could be super infrequent, you know, like it's every sixth team air because it's pretty rare to have one team air twelve times in a quiz, right, right? but it just says, hey, it's out there because <laughs> um, something like six airs or seven airs or five airs is a lot for one team in a quiz. Um, and it's just like a little extra thing. Like, do you want to be jumping at this pace? Because um, that is another thing I see about see at internationals is regardless of how well a team knows the material, everyone jumps at roughly the same speed, especially on interrogatives. And it would be nice if you have a little bit to say, if you don't know the material well enough to jump at this speed, it's going to hurt a little bit more, you know? Right. All right, interesting. Well, Alan, you you had mentioned in the pre-show about Quizmaster Bleeding. So the idea of Quizmaster Bleeding is, uh, you know, Quizmaster's reading a question, somebody jumps, their light goes on, maybe there's a beep uh, on the console, and the Quizmaster bleeds out an extra, you know, syllable, an extra mouth shape, maybe two syllables, 
hopefully not too much more than that. Although sometimes it can be, uh, if there's a lot of bleeding, there can be, you know, quite a number of syllables that, that, that escape before they stop. Uh, and then the question is, should it be raised as an issue if it is egregious? So, uh, yeah, I have some thoughts around this, but, uh, Scott, what are your thoughts? Um, I think it should be. I try to be as empathetic as I can about amount of bleeding because um, I think the foremost goal of a quizmaster is to have a consistent amount, right? So that you are only stopping your reading when you see a light. You're not anticipating a light coming on, um, and you're consistent in how quickly you stop. And so it could be for some quizmaster that's very, very quickly. It can be for another quizmaster that it takes a little bit longer. I think I'm one of those that it takes a little bit longer for. But you just don't want that to be inconsistent. So I've seen quizmasters that either read so fast that um, when they stop is very inconsistent because of how fast they're going. I've seen quizmasters that will almost always complete a full word. And so if you jump mid-word, you get the rest of it. Um, versus if you jump on a one-syllable word, you just get that one. Um, and so those sorts of inconsistencies are not good. And I've and I have seen a, a case in internationals where a quizmaster was just anticipating jumps on specialties um, and like speeding up to get out as much as they could, um, and then bleeding over on other stuff. And it was it was really bad. And I I almost um, did something. I mean, this, it was my first year of coaching, and so I probably didn't feel as confident to do something about it, but it was really bad. And um, I think, I just feel like at internationals, kids have worked so hard that it's such a disservice to every single quizzer to be that bad that I would definitely say something. Now, would you protest or how would you do it? Would you call a timeout and just, you know, speak, you know, privately to the uh, QM or how would you do that? So I'm not sure what I would do. I think the best thing is to probably talk to the meet director because they're the ones with the power to take any action. Um, but I don't know. I don't think talking directly to a quizmaster is going to do anything because either they're not aware of it, but I don't know how being aware of it is going to change things, or they're aware of it and don't care. I don't know. I just I would definitely either talk to the meet director or I would openly protest so that it is like openly discussed um, like on a wider platform. Interesting. But I definitely wouldn't well, talk to the quizmaster directly. It's just it's too much opportunity for them to either brush it away or be I don't know personally affronted in i don't know it just i would i would definitely make it more public yeah interesting well and of course now you wouldn't be able to protest without a challenge first which would be really interesting how that challenge would would go off but i can um, i consider this to be a logistical error made by the quiz master i don't consider this to be an error based on like rulings or interpretation yeah. of the rule book i think this is logistical yeah fair enough alan what are your thoughts on this i mean you, this is your topic anyway yeah i i wanted to get um, an outside point of view because um, I agree with Scott one hundred percent about you know me as I quiz master in the district, so it's something that I when I was a quizzer I would look for it because it's helpful. So as a quiz master I look to not do it um, egregiously. I look to try to stop as quickly as possible. Um, so and then as far as as far as how to bring it to a quiz master's attention, talking directly to one, I, I can't imagine it ever going very well. At the best, it will be, oh, okay, I didn't notice. I will try to do better. And then they will spend the entire time worrying about that. And maybe, you know, especially at the international level, um, 
which is how we would ever quiz against one another. It's just one of those things where they already have so much to worry about. They have a schedule to keep tight. They have question sets to make sure that they implement well. They have, you know, the pressure of being an international quiz master. You know, they have all these coaches who were either once really good quizzers or who have quiz masters at high levels who are approaching them about things. I can't imagine that going very well. But it's something that you... I feel like if it's egregious, it's going to affect the integrity of the quiz. And anything that affects the integrity of quizzing needs to be raised as an issue, even if it's something as, you know, I'm not going to say trivial because it's not, but even if it's something like the quiz master can't stop when they should, something should be done because it's not. If they always do it, it's still not a level playing field. A lot of people would see it that way. Maybe I'm wrong. You can chime in on this point in particular. But it's not a level playing field because it could create habits that you don't want your kids to learn about, oh, we can pre-jump here. We can jump before they even say anything on this type of question. And it affects the integrity of what quizzing is and should be. It becomes much less of a skill thing and much more of a luck thing. Yeah, I definitely see the the luck argument. Um, I think from my perspective, I I, I always want to have feedback loops, right? I mean, this is this is sort of like you know me as a you know as a pastor, but also as a you know a software engineer. I like having feedback loops are is incredibly important. So the idea of of when it comes to quizmaster quality in general, you know, uh, bleeding or you know any number of other things. Uh, I would want to be able to see some sort of feedback loop, but I totally get the idea of like how how can you set up that feedback loop if it's a coach coming to talk to you know a quiz master like say during a timeout or something like that. I mean, like yeah, if 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 a coach talks to a quiz master about it during a timeout, you're either gonna you know if you have a poor quiz master, they're gonna either brush it off or they're going to be negative toward you and then your team. Let's say, I mean that, that's a horrible situation i hope that doesn't ever happen anywhere but i mean at least it's possible versus it the other side of the coin. Uh, yeah which is which is horrible i mean really the the, the right response is would be a quiz master hears that and then says oh no i'm I'll, I'll try to do better and then you know that's stuck in their head the entire rest of the meet right you know like like um if if somebody had you know mentions to me like on on quiz three or four like oh griffin you're you're really bleeding on you know finish the verses then i'm going to be like every time a finish the verse shows up for the entire rest of the meet i'm going to be like hyper focused on it or or something possibly to a detriment it's definitely going to get in my head um but maybe that's just because I'm not a good enough quiz master. So, I mean, maybe, I don't know, there there definitely needs to be some sort of feedback. So then how do you do it? Do you talk to the meet director? Well, I mean, at internationals this year, um, Zach was the meet director. And I think he he did a phenomenally good job of like, he was moving around in between all the rooms. I saw him in my room quite a bit. Like, I loved the fact that he was looking 
he was going around the different rooms. He was watching the quiz masters. He was watching what was going on. He was taking copious notes. Um, I don't think I ever received any feedback from him, but like if I was doing anything like overtly bad, I, I suspect he would have given me feedback. And so like, like I think that was, a, that would have been a wonderful thing. Um, at, at say a district meet, um, I've been this year at, in PNW as district coordinator, I've been trying to not quiz master if I don't absolutely need to, which is kind of sad for me because I love quiz mastering, but it gives me the opportunity to move around to the different rooms so I can kind of see what other quiz masters are doing and then I can provide them feedback. But I do it at the end of the meet. Um, and, 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 but that's more sort of a, an idea of like continuous improvement with at the district level to get the next meet better than the previous one. And so like, to me, unless something's super bad, and of course we have really great quiz masters, so I don't, there really isn't anything super bad. Um, but unless there's something super bad, I don't really take action in that moment. Um, but internationals, like it's one, it's one meet, right? You can't wait to the end of the meet to give feedback because then it's like, well, now it's over. Right. Um, so then, then how far is egregious and where do you go there? And I, I, and like, like Scott, I kind of look at it from a consistency perspective, um, within limits. So like on one hand, if somebody is very consistently giving out one and a half extra syllables, right there, there, and like it's, it's, or, or let's say it's between one and a half and two syllables and it's, and it's consistently that on every question, uh, regardless of type, then I'm kind of like, well, that's not that bad, right? It and versus somebody who like immediately stops, which is better, right? But if somebody is giving out like sometimes it's one syllable, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's a whole word, like that's just not cool because the exactly like what Alan's saying, I mean, you basically turn the competition into a jumping speed wise thing. And, you know, basically anything after a foul is fair game. Uh, and that's not really the goal of quizzing either. I agree. Yeah. And I think if it was bad enough internationals, there might be a time where I would say something really just as posturing to try to change things for the future. Um, there might be times where someone like um, Zach is is me director or Kasky, who I know have quiz mastered in the past, where if it is brought to their attention that it is bad enough, they might just quiz master themselves. Um, which would be a large improvement. Um, but I do try to be empathetic because I know that, I don't know if it's every year, or um, but there are years where they can't find Quizmasters for internationals. Like, it's a volunteer position. Um, and so I don't want to just say, like, oh, the committee did a bad job because it's not like, oh, we get to, we have 60 willing applicants all saying we're, you know, why they're a really good quiz. Like, that's not the case, right? right. <laughs> it's a volunteer position, and sometimes you just, this is who you had because we can't pay to fly in people from wherever. Um, and there was one year at Internationals, I know that they struggled to find a fourth, and they found someone who was locally, and they weren't great. Um, I mean, they're, they were not good, but I wasn't going to complain to them, right? Like, we would have had a three-room Internationals that would have had a abbreviated schedule otherwise. So as much as possible, I want to be reasonable, but if there are things that I can do that will make a change, and um, I don't know how quiz masters are selected, so I don't know if they have nine to pick from and they decide to pick these four, or if they have to beg to get to four, I have no idea, right? But um, I think because we're not told if there's any sort of verification process or post-meet feedback loop, um, it can make it more of a push to want to say something if it is bad enough in a single meet. Right, yeah. But I know. Well, I'll tell you there. Oh, 
Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. The, I mean, there have been times at Great West where I thought there was not the greatest Quizmaster, but I'm not going to say anything during the meet. Um, we have times, you know, between the years where the program or the um, district coordinators talk and we can talk about those things there, you know. And so it's something like a district meet or Great West that are just have a less importance um, and less kind of finality. There's just not really a reason to bring it up. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, with that said, let's move on to uh, our rulebook refactor proposal and the rationale and sort of the nerding out regarding uh, what that will all look like. So the rulebook uh, for CMA is a um, heavily edited document uh, over time. It, it sort of continues to be iterated on each year. I mean, there's, there's not, you know, massive, typically there's not massive changes to it. It's little tweaks here and there, and it's constantly edited and improved uh, over time. Uh, sometimes rules get inserted in there where, you know, we're kind of like, eh, not a big fan of that one. Uh, but oh, oh, by and large, uh, you know, over the course of time, the, the goal is to constantly make uh, improvements and tweaks to the rulebook and so forth. The Then, of course, at the district levels, you know, even the rulebook CMA, you know, national or international uh, rulebook talks about, you know, yeah, at, at your district level, you can uh, override whatever kind of rules you want to and, and that sort of thing. And so... You know, in PNW, we have our local PNW rulebook, which is really just, it's a sort of a hodgepodge of a couple of things that are sort of overrides to the CMA rulebook. So we don't have, we don't really have like a PNW rulebook that is entirely different than CMAs. We actually use CMAs, but then we sort of override a couple of little things here and there uh, for our district. And then what ends up happening typically is, you know, or not typically, but sometimes uh, CMA will make a change. Uh, and at the district level, we feel like, oh, this is a big change. We're not ready to adopt this one yet. We don't adopt it for a season, maybe two seasons, and then we adopt it. So in a sense, what happens is our PNW local rulebook contains an override for a year or two, and then that override gets sunset. And then by, you know, by implication, we, uh, we are adopting the change that had been in, you know, CMA for, you know, a couple of years at that point, that sort of thing. Well, what ends up happening as a result of all of these sort of uh, tweaks that happen at the CMA rulebook is that the CMA rulebook becomes something that is extraordinarily well understood by by veterans, you know, so people who are close to the CMA rulebook, who read it constantly, who are or are working on it in some capacity, either, you know, as an official, or if you happen to be on the committee that's actually, you know, editing it or that kind of thing, you know, you're getting very, very intimate with this rulebook and you understand it a lot. You also get very intimate with uh, sort of the implications of certain rules, and that's not really the right word, the sort of the hidden meaning be behind certain rules. So there's certain rules out there in the rulebook that are very terse, and they're clear because they're terse, but because of their terseosity, they tend to be somewhat ambiguous for edge cases. Uh, but if you are intimately familiar with the arguments behind the change that went into making that particular terse rule, you can perfectly elaborate on what that happens to be. Maybe not perfectly, but I mean, you have a, a really good chance of being able to elaborate on that rule uh, and understand it and deploy it uh, correctly. But what ends up happening then is if somebody is new to the program coming in, you know, maybe not so much at a district level, but let's say at a church level, at a ministry level, and they haven't done quizzing before, and you give them the rule book and they're saying like, okay, I have an idea of what, 
you know, quizzing is about. And then when they go to a meet, they're, they're kind of like, well, wait a minute. I don't understand what that means. And that means, and that means, and there's a lot of ambiguity that kind of pumps into that. Now, some of that can be, you know, the person just didn't read the rule book all that carefully. That, that definitely happens, but some of it can be, you know, the rule book is kind of inaccessible, maybe not completely, but there's some level of inaccessibility for rookies for some definition of rookie, uh, in, in the rule book that's there. The other thing that's kind of weird about it is sometimes it's difficult. I've noticed this as a quiz master trying to look up a rule on the fly really quickly. Uh, it's, pretty difficult to find some of the rules unless you know exactly where you're looking. So certain ideas for certain rules can be either in one spot here, one spot here, one spot over on this other uh, location. And you're kind of fumbling through the rule book, looking for different things, different components of uh, the situation that you're, that you're happening to adjudicate on at the moment. Well, the idea here for a refactor of the rule book is to basically, it's sort of like it comes out of the software universe. We're not talking about, the proposal here is not to rewrite the rule book, not in a sense of like, let's start from scratch and actually create new rules and new implications uh, to those rules, not at all. But rather a refactor is to say, let's take, let's basically come up with a simplified version of the rule book that is a little bit better organized uh, in terms of where the content is and how the content is written, such that when it is complete, it actually renders an application that is identical to or as close to identical as we can possibly make it to the existing rulebook. All right. And it's like, okay, well, what's the rationale behind doing this? Why on earth would we bother doing this? Well, you know, apart from just the pure OCD factor of, and the nerding out of having a refactored rule book, there are some actual value adds that can come out of this. One of them is the idea that you can say, well, if I'm in a given question type in a particular question number within a particular quiz, I can actually programmatically search through essentially metadata of a refactored rulebook and say, here are all the rules that actually apply right now to this given situation. So in an effect, instead of, you know, thumbing through the full rulebook, you only have like basically one page of rules that actually apply for the very specific case that you happen to be in, right? So that makes that life a little bit easier. And if you're using, you know, a program like CBQZ, then CBQZ can just automatically say, okay, here are all the rules that apply, right? Now you still have access to more things, but I mean, here's all the rules that apply to the, the specific question, you know, type, number, situation in the meet, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and that all gets pulled out, you know, for you. The other thing that I kind of like about the idea of kind of metadata ising and lay of the of a refactor is you can actually build out the content into I guess what you could call content layers so you can have the very simplest most terse rule at at sort of layer 0 and then layer 1 is sort of a layer beneath level, level zero that is just a rule, but it's a little bit more verbose. It describes things a little bit more. And then the next layer below that might say, well, there's a, some examples uh, around that particular rule. And then the, the rule below that, or the layer below that, sorry, same, same rule, right? But the, the, the layer be below that might have 
uh, commentary on the particular rule, kind of the rationale behind why that rule exists in some degree or another, right? So if you're normally in the process of adjudicating a question, you absolutely never want to get to, well, not never, but you would almost never want to get down to the, why does this rule exist layer? But, uh, and you would probably never want to have to thumb through examples either, but sometimes you want to say, I want to jump down a layer to get a little bit more specificity about something, and you can do that. Um, so uh, with that said, what do you guys think about the um, the proposal, the rationale, and here's your chance to nerd out. Do you want to jump in first, Alan? <clears throat> I think that, <laughs> you know, you, you spoke a lot. I want to make sure I understand it all, but it just makes, it, 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 in the broad sense, it just feels like it will make the job of implementing how quizzing should be as far as the rules so much easier it will just make life easier knowing that okay i have this reference i don't have to i guess manually have to go through and find where this is it will just be there and anything that brings ease and um the ability to streamline things as as far as especially on a huge level great west pnw district quizzing because you guys have a lot of quizzers um all the way down to the smaller leagues who can get themselves familiar with things much more easy um much easier um in that way would make so much more sense and and then streamlining especially if it's adopted by by the masses is streamlining quizzing itself and streamlining rulings and having things make so much more sense um in a shorter amount of time, it's just going to make for a better quality of meat and a better quality of quiz master, better, and probably a better quality of quizzer too, if you really think about it. So I think it's a really cool idea. I told you that when you first floated the idea to me, how, how great I thought the idea was. I do think it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're focused on parity, or not even focused, but being held to parity, where you're merely focused on making what exists um, better organized. Um, I know that within PNW, we have in the past made a like shortened rulebook, where we basically copy and pasted one-fourth of the rulebook, so that when we had new scorekeepers and answer judges and quiz masters, we could just say, like, read this. It's four pages. Um, and then if they had a handle on that and wanted to read more, they could, but they didn't really have to. Um, so there would be a lot of value there. I think one thing that you're focused on, Griffin, is building up programs and um, making the rulebook a lot more accessible to someone who doesn't know anything about quizzing, I think, is a big win. Um, but I think just inherent in anything in life, if something already exists and you're just changing one thing, you make that change in a very kind of short-sighted, myopic fashion, and everyone does this. Um, but if you're able to say, hey, we're not going to do anything new here, not, no, um, we're not going to add rules or change existing ones, but we're just going to merely make everything clearer, I think there could be a lot of benefit from that. Um, I think you'd want to set up a good structure for doing it and have good buy-off where this is who's going to do it and this is how it's going to be verified that it is at parity. Um, but all those, yeah, all those things sound sound good to me. I, I know that there are 
random rules that are mentioned briefly in multiple places in the rulebook and not using the exact same words. And you're left to kind of decide which one you want to put more stock in. Yeah. And I think in terms, it sort of helps everybody at different levels, right? So like if you happen to be on a committee that's actually responsible for, for maintaining the rules, right? Either at the, you know, the CMA level or let's say down at the the district level, we have a rules committee at our district level that uh, talks about like in, and argues incessantly because we're all a bunch of nerds around like like what sort of things are we going to do in P and W that are slightly different than than CMA and and what are the values and pros and cons and all that kind of stuff and we hash all that stuff out. The the people who work in these groups don't stay in those groups forever, right? So there's going to be this sort of natural attrition that happens within every sort of rules committee. And, you know, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, you're not actually editing, like, the whole rule book. You're just focusing at a very, very, very tiny, narrow, you know, section of the rules or one, even one phrase in the rules, you know, kind of saying like one word, even, you know, you're saying, what does that one word mean? And let's change that one word to this other one word and that kind of stuff. And ultimately, like, I think future generations of uh, rules committees will substantially benefit by having not just examples that illustrate the meaning, but even the the commentary, the sort of the reasons and the rationale for like, well, we made this change here because of these reasons. That becomes incredibly important to like a future generation of rules maintainers to be able to understand that because then they can say, okay, well, clearly that reason no longer exists or, well, I never understood that reason. And now that I see it, clearly that reason still exists and we should maintain that edit, you know, and you can have that sort of um, continuity, but the, it's really more sort of handing down of wisdom throughout the, the ages of uh, folks who are on these committees and running these rules. The question of course then is like, what's the best way to, to go about doing this? You want to make sure that it's accessible to everyone. You want to make sure that anybody can have at least the opportunity of contribution, even if they don't. So, you know, the idea of the, the, the rule book existing, say in a word document or something like that, um, theoretically, anybody who had a copy of word could, theoretically make contributions to the rule book or could submit contributions. So, you know, if you're talking about moving this from say a word doc into something that's a little bit more extensible and has meta uh, associated with it, you know, you want to figure out a way to make sure that really anybody uh, can have at least an opportunity to be able to at least theoretically contribute in some way to the either a change in the rule or adding adding an example or adding to the commentary or commenting even on it as well. Uh, and there's certain things in the open source community, you know, in terms of, you know, software that, that makes that a little bit easier. But whatever we, we go with there would need to be accessible to everybody. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's a really cool undertaking that you're doing. It's, I mean, obviously it shows the passion that you have for it, but it's just it's just logical. It makes logical sense for it to be something that, you know, as Cousin grows and as we grow technologically... It just makes sense to merge the two into something like this. If I may nerd out a little bit, there is a, um, in the world of professional golf, there was a very important tournament and a player was leading 
Um, and then as they were about to hit a shot, their golf ball moved almost imperceptibly. Um, and what ended up happening was the player was penalized because the rule book was written in such – the wording was such that you, there had to be like – irrefutable evidence that something else caused the ball to move. Otherwise we will assume that the player did it. And so it, that was a case where the rule, the specific wording of the rule book um, was applied in probably the most logical way, but it may not have been why those words were originally written. And, um, and that led the governing bodies to want to change that rule because they didn't like the application that they felt forced to make based off of the wording and then couple that with the world of uh, professional and, well, specifically recreational golf has seen a waning of interest. And um, there was focus on the rule book, how long it is, how convoluted it is, um, hard to understand. And so there was a concerted effort made to rewrite it and make it simpler. And there were a lot of, um, you know, four terms were combined into one. Um, and this arcane wording about something that almost never happens was simplified to be very reasonable. And um, that was done to make it more understandable, make the game more accessible and make um, just more enjoyable to play and to watch. And I think that could be a decent model, right? Like are there ways that we can um, make the quizzing rule book as it exists now, like the specific rules in it now, way more easier to understand and apply and read. And I think that would only be a good thing. Cool. All right. Well, with that being said, we are a little over time, so we should kind of draw this up to a close. We would love to hear some feedback from you listeners. If uh, you have any kind of questions for Alan about Winter Nationals or any other sort of awesome things that Alan brings to the table, uh, if you disagree with any of us on anything, you know, if you have a different point of view on the Quizmaster bleeding stuff, or you have some thoughts about the rulebook refactor, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the effort to refactor the rulebook, uh, would very much love to hear from you. Or if you think the real rule book refactor is a terrible idea and you have a really great reason why, I would very much love to hear from you. Please email us uh, at the show. Our email address is iq at cbqz.org. And then the, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you, Alan, for joining us. And thank you, Scott. Of course. No problem. Always. Thanks, everyone. Happy listening and studying. 